0: Hi, my name is Steve Finney, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to my message called The Calling. It is bits and pieces and literally clips out of my prayer journal, personal messages that God has given me through the years. Please do not interpret any of these journal entries as replacing, deleting, or adding to the Word of God, it's just simply God using the Word of God to speak to me. Enjoy. And I want to thank you again for taking the time to listen to this testimony. The primary struggle that I think all of us embrace individually, as well as the church unit, as well as the nation is groaning right now, as well as the world is groaning right now. The primary struggle is... What is our calling? What is our calling as an individual? What is our calling as this tiny little group? What's our calling in the ministry that we support? What is our calling as a local church that might have a building in the community? What's our calling as a state? You see, what it does is it, it clears up a lot when you got your calling figured out. I mean, think about it you get up every day you know what you're going to do you know why you're supposed to do it and you know you're going to be given power to do it there's really nothing else to struggle with and when stuff does get in your pathway that could cause you to struggle this is really what causes you to get refocused again that that is why God gave us this book and so we get up every morning We're not supposed to have devotions like it's some kind of magic potion. We're supposed to get up every day. And when we lose sight of our calling, our higher calling, our upward calling, my utmost, whatever you want to call it, it is to crack the book and to look at the things that God said write down so you don't easily forget it. Well, that's what he did with all of his major and minor prophets so that we could read what God wrote through their hands and then we could go, oh yeah, that's right. That's what we're called to do. And it clears everything up. Then the stub toe or the death of that loved one or the crisis that's within a nation doesn't seem quite as suffocating. When Job's wife got sick and tired of looking at her husband suffer, and I don't think there's any of us that can really even try to get our, our minds around what Job suffered. It wasn't about his boils, I can tell you that. I have sliced and diced the book and thought I was going to write a book on it one day called, you know... Uh, permissible suffocation. Maybe I'll finish it someday. But as I was slicing and dicing that book, I did discover something very unique. His complaints were not about his boils, his physical ailments. He did mention them from time to time and why he kept throwing himself into the ashes and how that made his wounds feel better for some reason but that's not what he was suffering he was suffering over the fact that his friends were were nowhere to be found he was suffering over the fact that his wife was rubbing his face in his misery he was suffering over the fact that children would walk by and see him and turn their faces from him he was suffering from the fact that he felt alone and deserted and that there was no comfort to be provided for him. That's the worst kind of suffering there is. And that's what was being disrobed for us here, so to speak, with the story of Job. He was suffocating. And the thing that gives us air is for a wife, for example, to come and say, Honey, whatever you do, do not... Condemn God in this. Don't shake your fist at God. Be strong. Be encouraged. You're going to get through this. But no, his greatest love, the love of his one flesh, said, Curse God and be done with it. Which happens to be the exact same message of the Antichrist. Now, you walk that illustration all the way through if you want. It's devastating. For a man of God, righteous and holy, who's been proven in the eternal places as the most righteous man on the face of the earth that ever lived after Adam's fall. All the demonic forces, all of the heavenly forces, and all of the earthly beings knew that Job was the most righteous man that ever walked the face of the earth. And his wife says to him, curse God and be done with it. First time I read that, I thought she's the one that should have been taken out. Not as kids. But that's not how God functions. When God puts two or more together, and he joins two together, let no man separate that he himself will not break that rule. He wasn't going to destroy Eve Eve in this situation because that had to play it out. He wasn't going to destroy Job's wife because it had to play it out. He's not going to destroy your wife. He needs to play that out. When he says it's done being played out, then he takes the person away. Sounds like someone who likes to play God to me. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of what God does. He plays God. Now, all that to say, the basic struggles are us not having a clear focus on our calling. Most people spend their whole lives to figure that out. And if you look in history, I read this online, like most things, Information Highway has become quite um, demonic. It's also become a venue, really, to tap into the body of Christ in a rather significant way. But... um, as I was researching some of our stuff for today and for a few weeks to, to come about understanding and, um, and embracing our calling, is that um, in history there's usually people that we write about, like my book over there on the patriarchs, there are statements about a small little period in their life that they nailed something to a door, and it either created a, a fight or a war, or separated or did whatever, their whole lives were not known for being heroic. It was usually a section of time. And we're the one that turns their whole life into this heroic life. So it's like they, they're they being built for a, for a moment. Could last a week, could last for a day, 9-11, could last for a month, could last for several years, like, like Martin Luther, for example. But it's usually just a little section in God's timeline. Find that comforting. Because if you haven't found your calling yet, don't give up. No matter what your age is, because one day, one week, one moment for God can change the course of church history. Even a rebel knows that. In saying that, I want to tell you a little story here. In fact, uh, Grace Fellowship put this little poem in... um, a little plastic bookmark for you I left it upstairs but uh... will make sure that you get a copy to keep in your Bible if you want but I'm going to tell you a story behind this little poem. It was actually written in 2009 those of you who have done any reading by Dr. Charles Solomon who's my boss and also my spiritual father know that um... God gave him a poem um, on the day that he was broken and on this day that he was broken, this tunnel was given him. He was—he did not grow up a poet. He had never written a poem in his entire life. He now has two volumes published. And I'm working on the third, which we're going to actually turn into a devotion, uh, hopefully, that Tyndale will use as a follow-up of like the Oswald Chambers type of thing, except for The Exchange Life. But his poems are so incredibly uh, divinely meaty and precise when it comes to understanding who Christ is in you. That um, the fact that he became a poet was just simply God. His first poem that was given him by God was called The Tunnel, which is what the book is based on, Handbook to Happiness. And that's the pathway from Egypt to the Canaan land. The tunnel is the wilderness. Getting through the tunnel to discover your calling. So, when God wants to speak to him, it's like some people, like Q, sits down and writes a song. God is very poetic. David, when God wanted to speak to him, he'd stick him out on a hill. And he'd pick up his little quill or whatever it is that he wrote with, and all of a sudden you get a psalm. Because I believe God is very creative in the way He communicates to us. It's very poetic. He's very. He knows that the mind is like little cowboy listening to that children's song and having a hundred percent of his attention where when we're talking about something else, he just zooms in once in a while. That sing-sung is a childlike way that God has always used to say, even to profound minds like David, simple things. So God told Chuck to pick up his pencil and pad of paper in 2009. I have a poem for you. So he he writes out this poem and he did what he does with all of his poems. Right now he directs them to me and I file them in a very special file because I believe God's going to do something very special with these poems. So he, I tell him just to write. Just keep writing. I need every letter, jot and tittle out of you before God decides to take you home. So that's what he's doing. Well, back in 2009 he did this and he took the poem and he filed it away. He'll probably have a poem coming to him today. They're almost daily. So he'll probably have one today. He wrote a book on 9-11 about being soldiers of Christ. So he has always been used by God to take current events and basically be blessed in such a way to communicate them in a simple, rhythmic kind of way that people can really understand. So here's what God gave him, provision for the vision. You have not chosen me, but I chose you in sovereign grace that you should bring forth fruit, fruit that will remain in place. Whatever you ask the Father, you are to ask in my name. He is faithful to give it to you for the glory of the same. With the calling to bear fruit, I will also increase your vision. As you are obedient to my calling, you will surely know provision. I'm sitting in my hotel room. I get this phone call from Jane. Or text or whatever it was. It started the whole thing off. And she tells me that we are in financial crisis. That it hasn't been... We haven't seen a month like this, probably, in the history of our ministry. Well, I knew we were in some serious struggles, or about to have some very serious struggles. So I am fighting this grief. And... As, you know, I'm hearing this news, I am worrying with, I know, I know that I have heard your calling. I know that I'm supposed to do this. I know that I'm supposed to be sitting here. And I'm literally sitting at my computer working on the, the global initiative for the ministry. Which has got thousands of moving parts. And so... I am kind of parenting back to God. I, I know. I, I, I just know what, what is going on here. So then I get a call from my assistant at Grace Fellowship, and and she says, because uh, they were putting a mailing together just for the IOM contact people, and they were going to send out their mini-magazine with a envelope, which we encourage people to donate for the mission and blah, blah, blah. She says, well, we got to... We got a Finney sticker on there, and we wanted to make sure that your people would donate to your support account that you're establishing here at the ministry. And and, uh, there there was a note put in there by Dr. Solomon to our people, and then on the back she said, It's just a shame to waste white space. So dad said he wanted to put a poem in there that he wrote in 2009 because he didn't know really why he was supposed to write the poem, but he thought it'd be good for this time. So I said, well, what's a poem say? So she reads this poem to me over the phone and I just start breaking down in tears. In fact, true sobbing, just not just, you know, Yes. I mean, my body is shaking because I am overwhelmed by this message. Chuck also knows, and so does my family, that I don't like long poems. I don't like long psalms. I don't like long chapters. I like short and quick. And it hit me of the sovereignty of God putting a short, quick, Poem in the mind of my spiritual father that was going to be used many years later or several years later that would break me down and help me realize the sovereignty of God in a calling. Such is a time as this. So, This sobbing is going on, off and on for an hour. I get this phone call. And I pick it up, and it's the front desk, and they said, there's an envelope down here for you. And I said, thank you very much. And I literally wipe the tears off my face, and I go downstairs, and I grab this envelope, and I open it up in the elevator, and there's a $4,000 check a new donor from a new donor and this new donor said don't give up the faith and it had said some other sweet things that I'm going to hold on till I die but it almost matched perfectly with the poem I got an hour earlier then he wrote in 2009 which he says to this very day I don't know why I wrote it You see, everything has its perfect time and place. And everything is a setup for the next step. So, in looking at this vision, I thought for you guys to understand your pastor a little bit better and to understand kind of what's happening in this mind of mine, Um, I want to share with you a challenge that I gave my mentor. He started using the term New Reformation, as some of you know. New Reformation is being used by three primary groups in the world today. The John MacArthur group has started a New Reformation, and they believe that they are going to revive the original Reformation and bring it to the forefront of the church today. There's another group that's called the Apostolic Movement. And they have, they're they using the term New Reformation. And they believe that Christians literally need to take over world government, rebuild the Jerusalem before Christ will come. They're called Reconstructionist. So when we reanalyze this prayer thing that the governor did in Texas and how there were several people even connected to the ministry of Grace Fellowship were excited about it, I explained to these staff members and supporters that that event was actually put on by the New Reformation Reconstructionists. And they are uniting political leaders to for Christians to take over the world. Well, that put a sour note in the Christian thing that happened in Texas. And they're very arrogant about it. Their names are all over the webpage. Very arrogant about the fact that they are rebuilding the world for Christ. So we realize very quickly we need to stop using this term new reformation. And I just left it to my mentor because this global initiative we're working on is pretty significant. It's pretty significant theologically and it's pretty significant in regard to reaching the church. So it was very important that our message was extremely clear. So, after a couple of weeks, Chuck sends me this document that says, I hope this helps you understand what I'm actually trying to say about the New Reformation, which I was kicking back from because of these other two movements. Too many people are talking about the New Reformation. And there is going to be one, by the way. So, he came back with the terminology completing the Reformation, which was very clear. And I want to read it to you. And I want our online listeners to very carefully listen to this. Chuck himself would say there's nothing special about him, and he's no Martin Luther, and he's no You know, Paul walking around in modern days, he's just another man that's trying to complete the Reformation that God gave to the New Testament church. He's one of thousands. But here's the way that Chuck put it Completing the Reformation by Dr. Charles Solomon. There are differing views of the needed Reformation, which apply uh, today, since the church is becoming increasingly. Uh, ineffective in its mission in revitalizing its sorely needed I believe we need to revi- revisit the first re- reformation some five centuries ago and discover what was lacking the rallying was, uh, cry was justification by faith at a time when the Roman church had Christianity in a s- stronghold or a stranglehold. The printing press was a boon since the people could read the Bible for themselves in, a vernacular, in the vernacular. Martin Luther and his fellow reformers were able to make the break with the Roman Church and herald salvation by faith alone. There was a welcome innovation since the Roman Church considered that grace must be dispensed by its sacraments. However, those who experience salvation by faith alone from their sin did not take the next step of being saved from themselves. So that my, in my testimony as I shared it with you guys, when I got saved in that church on Saturday, I walked out of the church clearly knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's the Reformation. What I was not told, which Chuck told me many years later when he began to disciple me, and I had questions about the day of my salvation, he said, your pastor was simply unaware of the rest of the cross or the backside of the cross, which is you died with him. That's the rest of the Reformation. That's the completing of the Reformation. Therefore, back to what Chuck is saying, therefore progressive sanctification became the theology of choice, or by default. This country was literally founded by it. This despite the truth taught in Galatians 3.3, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? He goes on to say, Thus the cross and justification was loudly proclaimed, the cross for for the Lord Jesus Christ. However, the cross of sanctification, the cross for the believer, did not receive twin billing. Thus the default message resulted in a self or flesh improvement program which continues to this day with some notable exceptions. The lack of such widespread teaching has resulted in a wilderness church. He uses the term wilderness church like I use the term Laodicea, lukewarm. So the lack of such widespread teaching has resulted in a wilderness church which has a less than desirable impact on its believers and the surrounding culture. Even the major awakenings, such as the Welsh Revival at the turn of the 20th century, failed to make the cross explicit. Since it was explicit, lies were transformed by the Holy Spirit, but the revival soon began to wane, with the question being asked, how do we maintain revival? Which is the number one question in any authentic church today. Back to what Chuck said. God used Jesse Penn Lewis to address the aftermath in her excellent writing on the cross for the believer. Since her writing and that of others in similar vein, such as Major Ian Thomas, which was one of Chuck's mentors, back to what Chuck says, have been used of God to teach pockets of believers. However, the church as a whole has not been impacted by such teaching. Now we have a completed reformation with the cry of sanctification by faith. However, instead of nailing 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, we will have to nail one thesis or truth of Galatians 2.20 to 95 denominational doors. This is his mission statement. While our being crucified with Christ is not popular, since most are rather attached to their lives, losing our lives to save them is still the beginning of discipleship or sanctification as we read it in Luke 14.27. Since the late 60s, Grace Fellowship International has pioneered such an application of the cross in individual lives and small groups with the spirits transforming lives of those who were obedient to his injunction. However, the church has been enamored with Christian psychology, which is more in tune with progressive sanctification in the improvement of the flesh by default. I can do it. Desperation has been a common preparation for those who have lost their lives to find them. The church in the dark ages was desperate for an answer, even an incomplete one as was dispensed in the Reformation. Now the church is teetering on the brink of widespread desperation, which will make it more desirable, nay necessary, that it loses its life corporately in a completed reformation when the best of self-efforts is futile. The church growth and me- mega-church movement, along with Christian psychology, are on the wane, and a return or revisitation of reformation empowered by the Holy Spirit is the needed antidote for the wilderness church. Reverting or hearkening back to the reformers is not an option since they fell short of teaching sanctification by faith, though many are advocating such a return. And that's that one group. Justification by faith involves the cross for the unbeliever, but it must no longer be implicit. Sanctification by faith in the teaching of Romans 6 must be front and center as the rallying cry if the church is to know revitalization or continuous revival which may have desired which may have desired but few have found. Galatians 2.20 and Romans 6 must be coupled with Romans 1, 16 and 17. If the banner is to read not only justification by faith, but also sanctification by faith, then and only then will the Reformation have been completed. Now, I want to just give you a little... Uh, spiritual tidbit about my involvement with uh, this heavy thinker. Chuck Solomon is not a light thinker. Chuck Solomon would be put into the same category if I could be so so coarse as to say this as Oswald Chambers. If you've read any of Oswald Chambers' original works he was so incredibly thick with theology study of the word that it was very difficult to understand but he was very simple. The reason why Oswald Chambers is a household word today in almost every Christian home in the entire world is because of his wife who took the complexity of the spoken words of God through this man and simplified them in a very emotive way so the average heart can understand them. And even she was considered complicated to understand originally. And it is her spiritual children that have actually softened the message up even a little bit better. And hopefully they won't go any farther with it. I believe that my mind is so simple that I can barely read what Chuck writes, let alone say it like him, that it is my commissioning to take something that is extremely thick with truth, like what you just read, and to simplify it in such a way that a child can understand it. I think the reason why that this leader is a poet and such a thick theologian is because God needed to balance his mind out the reason why David was a poet and he is also one of the fathers of theology is because God needed to balance the man out so when it comes to passing the torch I believe it's very significant that the new successor is immovable in moving the landmarks that God gave the founder. And that's why I am filing absolutely everything this human, human, human has written. So that it can be taken out of a filing cabinet and simply stated in a simple fashion again. That goes with what we were teaching on patriarchism, which isn't even a word. But that's what that's what it's doing. It's it's grabbing a hold of something that was written and then re explaining it or restating it so someone can understand it. There's not a person in this room that can understand the original writings of this book. Even if you understand Hebrew or Greek. You see, it takes the Holy Spirit to simplify it. To bring it to mind in such a simple way that our minds can embrace it. Such is ministry. Such as a husband who says something to his son and the mother is going, John Mark is not getting that. So she comes along and says it. And this, the same thing in a way that is saying what he is saying in such a way that John Mark goes, Oh, okay, I get that. That's the way marriage works, family works, the church works, successorship works, and on and on. Now, last week we started uh, talking about some of these little uh, Clips that God gave me in my devotional. And I want to give you a couple of them today before we quit. Because it's going to set us up for uh, next week. So hearing God is an absolute lonely place. Someone give me an example. So we're not always using my examples. Someone give me an example of hearing God and you felt very lonely because you know you heard God and you were kind of afraid to say it. Someone have an example? It could be that you aren't even being told to say it to other people, but you have come to this realization and you know it's a very lonely place because no one else is going to agree with you or hear it that way or whatever the case may be. Truth is very lonely. Lonely. There's nothing bonding about it here. There is in heaven when you have a host of witnesses that are in agreement with it. (laughs) I mean, talk about not being alone. But here on earth, it's it's a lonely place. Uh, There's a short walk across the park from truth to idolatry. God knows that because He's the one that is truth. So when God is spoken of as if he's truth, it's idolatry. When God is spoken of as the truth, it is not idolatry. Now Satan has worked that one statement I just gave you to such a deceptive degree that your average Christian does not know what I just said. So the only way to actually test real truth to make sure it's not idolatry because what you said could even be idolatry having children having a large family even speaking the truth uh, in its purest form can be idolatry if it doesn't survive the baptism of fire so what God began to show me in my own personal journaling through the years is that I never questioned the truth I put inside your mortal soul. I mean, why would God question his own being? But what I have questioned is what you've layered onto this truth that I must burn off. From heart failure to rejection to persecution and distresses and insults and blah, 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 blah. I have my list. You have your list. To boil it down, to bring it down to that absolute lonely place where you groan before me. God's saying this. Before you are groaning in the basics of what I called you to do. I didn't call you to be a husband. I didn't call you to be a father. I didn't call you to be a pastor. I didn't call you to be to be a poet. I didn't call you to be a mother. I didn't call you to be a, a child. I didn't call you in any of these areas. It's like someone saying, I have the spiritual gift of music. I have the spiritual gift in ministry of deliverance. They're all lies. There is no spiritual gift of music. And if you think that there is, you have not been reading your Bible. You see, those things are given for the calling, for the higher calling. When they're all unified together in the body of Christ, it exalts the higher calling. So you've got to be in an absolute lonely place where you feel like everything's been burned off that you've considered to have value and purpose. To where God says, now you're lonely. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus himself had everything burned off to groan before his Abba and say, Abba, why have you turned your face against me? Which is actually what it translates to say. Because God can't look at sin. He's never been able to stare sin in the face. That's why he had angels come to the earth after sin and he wasn't walking through the garden in the cool of the day. He can't look at sin. Christ can. See, that was a lonely spot for him. To realize that his own Abba had to turn his face when Jesus Christ Did he have sin put on his shoulder or did he... He became sin. God can't look at sin. He became completely alone. Then he was put on the... In the process of burning all of that off. All of the sin off. So he came out of the tomb refined in complete mission. Jesus' mission only started after the tomb. Do you understand that? His whole eternity up to this point was for this moment of the power of resurrection, the exchange life. <laughs> we got it all backwards. We paint pictures of the cross and make movies and everything about this process. And God's saying, no, that was to lead him up to his loneliness to experience complete despair. So he had nothing left but to say, not I, but you, Abba. So when I had my moment of that, back in 2000, this is out of my prayer journal, he said, I called you to a lonely place so that I could give you rest. I've completed this work in you. Now, that was a little shocking to me, because to me it was kind of like, you know, I am completing this work in you. But he's saying, it's done. (laughs) You're the one that's not caught up with it. It's completed. So in respects of my mission, the truth of the matter is, my sweet spiritual father, this is it completing the Reformation, it's complete. But it is not in the sense of worldly condition. Never forget the belly of despair I have placed in you. Well, I certainly haven't, as you know, the despair I experienced last week. Had darkness come over me that I haven't had in a long time. Almost left this room and went and threw up. Because I saw despair on your faces. I felt it in the room. I was completely overwhelmed by this despair. And God's going, I put it there. I don't ever want you to forget this from your belly, Stephen. This was written in 2000. I'm sitting there in that chair last week wanting to throw up. Because of the despair I'm feeling of the church. God said he's going to leave it in my belly. I have marked these days on the tablets of my heart. Not many will understand the work and words I have given you. For I will be the one who determines who shall hear this testimony. Now go in peace. He didn't go on for hours with this. It was just simply accept it. This is done either join me in it or you fight me in it. You struggle in it. What struggle do you want? The struggle of working out your salvation or the struggle of working out Satan's? Which do you want? That's how logical Abba is. No, son, I'm not going to save you from this one. Nor am I going to look at you now. So, excuse me, son, I must turn my head. And Jesus was so close to his dad, he felt his head turn away from him instantly, just like that. That's how close he was. He just felt him turn his head away from Christ when he became sin. And kept his eyes off of Jesus until Jesus died, went to hell for three days, paid the price, came out of the tomb, and God looked at his face again. And it doesn't get any sweeter than that. But God could not stare at sin. There had to be a full-on exchange in His own Son so He could give it to us. Oh, I know my message I'm supposed to go to my grave with now. And it's so my blessed spiritual Father that gave, me, gave it to me because of Jesus Christ back in the 70s. And God has just brought me back to where he started me and gave me the other half of what I didn't get in that Presbyterian church that day. He also gave me a little uh, sweetie about my sweetie. And he helped me understand the importance of the wife of a youth. See, in my ministry capacity with, with Dr. Solomon, is much like a wife. And I'm not afraid to say that because as bridal members, we're all women. And in ministry setting, I am to function in my capacity with Chuck, much like a wife, to keep things really simple, to make it very easy to understand for the children that are that happen to be following this particular ministry. For the sake of Jesus Christ, not Chuck. We give this marriages to to, to to really accomplish the same type of mission. So Satan's going to want to divorce that marriage. He's going to want to divide that marriage so that you never get your higher calling. What better technique is there than to popularize divorce? Because if he popularizes divorce, people are never going to get this calling stuff. Where Jesus says, For I will never leave you or forsake you. You think he was talking about that because he didn't want you sad? He was speaking of his mission in you under the world. I will never leave you or forsake you. It wasn't to keep us happy. It was to keep us walking in the exchange by completion what has already been done. So here's what he said said to me back in 2001. He says, Stephen, I put Jane into your life to introduce you to me. I've used her to usher you into my inner room. Well, Jane could tell you stories about my fear of intimacy to the point of her holding on to me and me being curled up in a corner because of my fears and phobias and being afraid of even a human touch. I would drip with sweat if someone touched me. And God used this woman in my life to actually introduce me to the intimacies of Jesus Christ in the inner room, in my prayer closet. I have this with Christ when I'm alone with them because of my wife. So no one can tell me that God allows divorce. That's why there is no theology to support it because it's opposite of the truth. But if you have been divorced, he will use your present circumstances, but you must teach to your children and grandchildren these truths, or they too will be emergent and miss the calling. Marriage is for the calling. Marriage in Christ is for the calling. Christ didn't marry you so you can get to heaven. He married you for the higher upward calling of the mission given to Jesus Christ to come on the earth to save a lost world. But Christians want a convenient life with very little pain. He goes on to say, It has taken this many years to bring you to a place of understanding my commitment and love for you. Jane is not able to give you what you need. You have allowed her to take my place in your life. For this has worn her down. You have been called to build her up. Wash her with my words and lead her into the path that I lay before you. Most of the years that you have been together, you have spent following her lead. Lead her through the resources of my strength in you. Give her rest by letting her enjoy watching you. Have an intimate walk with me. This has been her prayer to me for many years. I have answered her prayers. Lord, why did it take so long? Oh, my child. This is not in italic, by the way, and this is. That means I interrupted him and asked him a question, which is in my journal a lot. And he responds with, For flesh needs time to bring my children into my arms. All things have their perfect timing, and this is the day I have made for you to truly know me. So, every falling building, every falling nation has its perfect timing. Why am I compelled to teach fatherhood? He said to me back in, I believe this was also in 2001, Hear, O Stephen, for I have appointed this time to speak my tender mercies over you. Rest and hear my voice. I shall shout words of knowledge from my holy throne. Will you not hear them? There has been wickedness in your home. My son, you have allowed the enemy through the gates. Do not stay silent any longer when you see sin in your home. And I didn't, and I got on a lot of trouble. When it is spoken of, speak against it. When your children show the callousness of their hearts in areas of secret sins, speak out against these sins. Your home is to be a safe haven for my words. Your children will struggle with feelings of rejection because some of these areas have become a part of who they think they are. Know this is okay. Always speak to them with love and tenderness. The enemy has spoken lies to your children and you have allowed them to settle into their lives. For this has been a grievous sin to me. You are their father it is your responsibility to continue to be the patriarch in their lives wisdom has not yet sprung up in them foolishness foolishness still needs to be foolishness still needs to be bound up in them this is your calling to continue to show them the, the role of a father and this role will not cease until i call you home after I call you home, they will continue to seek the role of a father, and I will show them my tender mercies and my, and my great promise. I, the Lord, thy God, will be a father to the fatherless. And of course, that was long before much of the confrontations I have had to have with my family members. But I wanted to show you this paragraph today to show you why I was compelled to go after my children's sins. And I am actually, uh, as it is stated to me, uh, disliked, despised, or even hated by some because I am fulfilling this commission. And now God is saying, you are finished with the family and I am taking you into the world. That's what you're seeing happening to me. That does not mean I'm going to ignore the family because he said, don't ever ignore it. But he is moving my focus. And all the things that have happened to me was to bring me to this point of uh, discovering this. Lessons of Mercy, he said this. All of what I've shown you, your secret place as a father, show them. Handle your children and grandchildren the very way I've handled you these past days. Have I not been tender with you? Have I not been merciful with you? Did you? Did I hold you when you should have been condemned? For my tenderness in the midst of your sin is what led you to repentance. Hold your children the same way, Stephen. All these days I have been looking at your heart, not your sin. This is why you changed. You knew I hated and despised your sin, did you not? For the sin that I was... For the sin that was held in your heart was not you. For I stood and watched as you held sin with the same passion and desire a son has in holding his father. Sin became a father to you. I choose this day to no longer stand by and watch you embrace sin as a way I want to embrace, as a way I want to be embraced by you. Hold me, Stephen, like you held sin. Do not cause me to be jealous any longer. For I, the Lord, uh, thy God, am a jealous God, and I will have no other God before me. From this day forward, I am calling you to handle all men, women, and children the very way I handled you these past days. Will you do this? Will you? Say it, Stephen, out loud. And I did. This is also exactly where I get my approach in uh, ministering on a day-to-day basis now. And then finally, my anointing, he said, your lack of knowledge throughout the days of your life has been the reason you have been hungry for knowledge as an adult. Much of the knowledge you have embraced has come from the tree of knowledge, not the tree of life. You have asked me to bless you with a daily manifestation of the word of uh, Um, daily manifestation of the word of knowledge. Do you want this, Stephen? And I said, yes, my Lord. And then he said, then remember this. My my word of knowledge is, is simply this. My words that come from my mind. This is the mystery that I promised to give you last night. Do you really want this? If I give this to you, you will need to stay in my inner room. For this is the only place I will speak them, and the only place you will hear them. If you want this gift, hold out your hands. Yes, now, and I did. I will pour it out upon you. I am not done, Stephen, my redeemed. You have asked for the gift of prophecy, have you not? And I said, Yes, Lord. And I have already put this gift in you. But hold out your hands now, and I will kindle afresh this gift in you. And I did. Hold out your hands, my child, and I will give you the desires of your heart. As you have requested, I will put my manifestations of healing in you. Open your hands, and I will touch them. Do you feel my power resonating from your hands? And I said, yes, Lord. Yes, your hands to, use your hands to touch my people. When you touch my people from this day forward, they will feel my power, strength, and tenderness. For this is what brings healing to my people. My power is the vessel of my mercies and it is my tender mercies that heal the minds and bodies of my people. All that, that whole little dialogue that I had with God was, I don't even have words to really describe to you how intimate and personal it was. And the emotion that was all packed into this moment But I can tell you this, that my whole life was being led up to this moment. I already knew I had the gift of prophecy. I had been tested in it. I already knew I had the gift of exhortation. I had been tested in it. But I had never really gotten to the point of dropping my guard and saying, I am willing to embrace all that comes with prophecy. I am willing to embrace all that comes with word and knowledges. I am willing to embrace all of it and I held out my hands and just like he said to Jeremiah which started our our message one or two weeks ago is behold God reached out and touched Jeremiah's mouth and put his words inside Jeremiah's mouth and that's what ignited Jeremiah's ministry that's what happened this day but I had all my exchange life training I had been a part of ministries for years gone by but it was during this moment that God said, now I will answer your prayers. And then I went into heart failure. So God didn't want any pride to pop up and destroy an anointing. So He burned it. He set it, touched it, and burned it. And it is just this past six months that God said, now I'll let you up again and my head's clear my head is very clear and I have hard days but I'm telling you my anointing is very clear I understand what's in these hands I understand what's in this head and I understand what has got to be said to a dying church and there is nothing special about me this is just my journey And you've all got one. This is my journey on being vulnerable and sharing with you, which I have shared with nobody but my wife. Not even my children. There's 175 pages of this. And more to come, he says. Just personal things that he says. Write this down. I don't want you forgetting it. It is not replacing the Word of God. That's why I put that little paragraph at the bottom. This is, this is not replacing, adding, deleting, anything from the Word of God. It is God making the Word personal. Which He does for everyone. But people are afraid to hear God. It's a lonely place. Whether it's 3 in the morning, 5 in the morning, or... Or you're like me. I have to go to my face whenever he puts his hand on me and I don't care where I'm at. I have to go to my face. Wherever your thing is is where he wants to meet you to say this, to say his message to you. Thoughts before we pray.